Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. Teachers spend their day confidently talking to a whole room of squirming, distracted students. But when it comes to having a chat with some of the parents of these students, these same teachers can be so nervous they avoid picking up the phone to call mom or dad. I and my colleagues that I've worked with don't like to call parents. That's Crystal Frommert, a middle school math teacher at a private school in Houston. We think that it takes too much time. We think that it might turn contentious. And these days, teachers can turn to other means of communication, like emailing notes to parents, blasting out weekly email newsletters, or relying on parents to check in on their students' progress on a digital grading platform. But Frommert argues that these other means should not substitute for the occasional phone call or in-person conversation. In fact, digital tools can often lead to misunderstandings. This teacher has learned that the hard way. One day during COVID, she dashed off a quick email to a parent who hadn't filled out a digital health form. It was meant as a gentle nudge, but the parent took it as terse and demanding and complained to the head of the school about Frommer's tone. I mean, I've had little dings like that throughout my career, right? Um, And they're all learning experiences. They're painful and they're not fun to have, but they're all learning experiences. Frommert shares her experiences and lessons communicating with parents in a new book, When Calling Parents Isn't Your Calling, A Teacher's Guide to Communicating with Parents. We connected with this teacher and author for this week's Ed Surge podcast. And one takeaway was that parent communication can be more complicated than ever these days. Here's the conversation. As you as you said, you've been teaching for a while, for 20 years plus, and I, things have, have changed in education. There, it seems like they're constantly changing. It's a time of great change. How, on this issue of parent communication between parents and, and, and teachers, what, what are some of the big things that you've seen change that, that are really significant? Yeah, so there's one of the things that I think is a negative change, and this is just my opinion, is online gradebooks are quite common everywhere. Uh, not every school, of course, has them, but most schools I've heard of have an online gradebook. Some of these online gradebooks will even alert the teacher, or I'm sorry, alert the parent when a grade has been posted. So you will be a parent at your job doing your daily work, and you will get an alert on your phone that your son or daughter made a 72 on a test, which I think is horrific. It's horrific for the parent because that's distracting to them. It's horrific for the child because the child didn't have to even have a chance to explain him or herself or, or bring the paper home to have a conversation um, because there's always a story behind that that grade. And what happens is the parent has higher anxiety because they're getting dinged on their phone or they're checking their, maybe they just want to check the online gray book and they'll send an email to the teacher. Why, why do I have a missing, why is my son have a missing assignment? Why did my daughter make a 62 on this test? Or even worse, they will text the child themselves during the school day. Why does your teacher say you have a zero on this assignment? Why did this happen? And I can't imagine the pressure that those kids feel and the parents feel. Um, I'm a parent myself and I have turned off all of my access to look at the online gradebook because I prefer to have actual conversations with my teenager about how she's doing. And one thing I'll mention too is um, I was much better as a teacher about communicating a child's progress before the online gradebook because I knew there wasn't a backup. 
there was nothing communicating their grades. I was the person communicating their grades. And now it's very easy to become complacent and think, well, they could always check online if they really want to know what's going on, but that's not a substitute for actually having a communication. It seems like there's also just seems like more common um, among, you know, I have a couple kids and the teachers that, that are in my life. I see this, but I think I didn't have, I didn't see this when I was a kid, partly because the technology has changed, but things like class newsletters once a week or, you know, kind of, and I'm like, oh my gosh, as somebody who helps write newsletters at EdSurge, that's a lot of work making a newsletter. And so I guess I'm curious, like we can get to that specific issue in a minute too, but like, do you feel like the percentage of time of the job it takes of parent communication is higher now than when you started teaching? That's a great question. My very first year of teaching, uh, I, I taught in rural Texas where it, the early 2000s where email was not that common. And so all of my communication was by phone and in person. And it's hard to compare because now you can sit down and shoot off an email in just a few seconds. So that part seems faster, but it's also more frequent. So it's really hard to compare if I'm making face-to-face conversations or phone calls to compare the dozens of short emails that I'm sending or that I'm getting that are pinging me in my inbox. So I think it's just very different. It's hard to compare if there's more communication. It's just quite different type of communication. I see. And what about class newsletters? Is this a a positive development or what what do you think? So I mentioned that in the book and uh, Jennifer Gonzalez with Cult of Pedagogy, she has a post called, why is no one reading your class newsletter? (laughs) And and I love that because um, we we write uh, report card narratives here, which is not so much a class newsletter, but it's also something that doesn't get read. And uh, a, a colleague of mine who's also a dad he said, yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't start reading your narrative until you mention my kid's name. And so what I've done is I now start with the kid's name. I'll say, it is a pleasure to have Jeff in my class. In this class, we are learning about solving quadratic equations. And so I got the parent's attention right there because they see their kid's name right at the top. And I think the same with newsletters. If it's not something that they're going to need to take action on, uh, they're just their inbox parents inboxes are full too and they're pinged all day long with with informations information overload so I think the newsletter um, and, and I would re- highly recommend the listeners um, find that post on, on cult of pedagogy is how to make it more meaningful and um, have action items for the family practical tips for families that they could do something at home uh, rather than a, just a gloss over of here's the curriculum because I can see that getting lost in an inbox there's an interesting um, thing, you know, sort of thing that's said, I think, or thought about parents who aren't very engaged, that somehow they're not, um, and you note this in the book, that somehow they're not, they don't care if they're not there or they're not like interacting. Um, and yet there might be reasons that parents don't have time. I, I wonder how much like, you know, what what you, t- how you think about um a disadvantage in a way a family might be at if they don't have time to be as engaged with the, the, the teachers or responsive because a lot of times especially it feels like the economy is tough and it, and people's jobs are maybe even more demanding for a lot of people and less flexible than in the past 
I don't know if you have thoughts about about that. Yeah, and I think there's always extremes. There's extreme parents who you can never get a hold of, and then there's also the extremes where you just cannot get them away from your classroom door. So I'm not saying either extreme is, is good, but there's a huge range in between. And as educators, at least in my experience, sadly, I think we're very quick to judge when, I've, and I can't speak for every educator, but just in my own experience with my colleagues, we are quick to judge when a parent doesn't write back or doesn't seem to care is what we jump to. That's a conclusion that we jump to. And that's not fair because we never really know what's going on in someone's house. And I can give you an example of, of a story that's happened to a friend of mine. She was director of a dance team. And after practice, every single practice, this, this girl was not picked up for like 45 minutes every time. And it's, it's pretty easy to jump to, well, the family just doesn't care. And, but she became curious, you know, like Ted Lasso, you know, he just stayed curious, right? So she became curious before she became judgmental. And she asked the daughter or, you know, asked the teenager and she said, you know, what's going on? You know, what, why is, why is it you can't get a ride after practice? And she said, I'm not really supposed to talk about this, but um, I have a brother who has a major health issue and it's really difficult for my mom to leave him alone. So I have to wait for someone else to come home to take care of him before she can leave and pick me up. And if that teacher had never paused to stay curious, she never would have known that. And she said, oh, I appreciate you telling me that. I will keep that confidential. But she did use that information to have a conversation with the parent. And it was a conversation of how can I help you? How can we find a solution for this? No, it's not okay for your daughter to wait 45 minutes after dance practice, but we need to work together to find a solution. And they did somehow. But I think it's really important that we stay curious. Do you have time for one more story about that? Oh, yes. Stories are are wonderful. It's always because these abstract advice things are just like, okay. This one is my favorite. It happened to me. It was parent conferences, and our parent conferences are scheduled back to back. There is not an inch in our schedule. And this this uh, family just didn't show up. Just no, no email, no phone call, just didn't show up. And I was annoyed, so annoyed. Like, you know, I have my whole day book, and how dare them not even show up or call or anything. And here they come at 5 o'clock, the end of our parent conference day. They're sauntering up, and I'm, I'm just seething inside. But, of course, I'm smiling on the outside because that's what we do. And the parents explained to me that they had found a stray dog who was injured when they were on their way to school and they had to stop and take the dog to the vet for emergency care. And they are so sorry they missed the appointment. Could I meet with them now? And they understood if I couldn't. Ever, all of my anger melted because I'm a dog person. And I thought, what wonderful people that they stopped to save this dog. And of course, I will stay 15, 20 minutes after my day to meet with you. Because just assume, just assuming that they didn't care was the wrong reaction that I had, and I just need to stay curious. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a great story. I I also know that you know the demographics of students, the demographics of the country are are changing, and I wonder how much language and cultural barriers can play a role um, when when you're you know, as a teacher to communicate with families? Yeah, so you really need to look at the population of your student body and what languages they are speaking at home. So like I said, I work at an international school. Our students represent over 60 countries. We have dozens of languages that are spoken in the homes of our families. 
And from my experience, I've noticed that when someone is writing an email in their second language or third language, it becomes uh, quite difficult uh, sometimes to get tone to come across appropriately. And I know this because I've written emails in Spanish. I'm not great at Spanish, and I'm sure they came across very harsh and abrupt. So I probably should not be writing emails in Spanish if I want my tone to be lighthearted and kind. Uh, so I've learned that when I do get an email that just seems like, oh, this tone is a little bit off, I'm going to pick up the phone. And you're going to hear something completely different most of the time, right? And you almost disarm them, you know, if they are really, if truly are upset and you give them a phone call rather than reply, there's a little bit of softening that happens as well. But back to the languages, accessibility is extremely important. So if a parent feels like they cannot talk to the teacher because of the language barrier, I feel that it's a responsibility of the school to make sure there are translators available. There is someone available for that in-person meeting or someone on a conference call who can be there to help with that language barrier. And that's that should not be up to the family. That should be up to the school to make sure that's provided. It basically, it seems like it might be easier, though, for a family with a language barrier to slip through the cracks or to be feel disconnected. Yeah, right. So we, it's easy to say, well, I'm not going to write them because... I don't have a translator available or I'm not going to call them because I don't have a translator available. So we need to pay special attention um, to families that we are letting slip through the cracks or we're just missing for various reasons. You mentioned that, you know, sometimes the idea is that a lot of times the interaction between a a teacher and a parent, when a parent, a teacher reaches out, it's because something's gone wrong or to correct something. But you also note that there's a role for happy notes, I think you called it. Um, t- tell us about why that can be a-, a thing or how your experience with sending notes about things going well. Yes, yes. There's, there's a selfish reason, which is, uh, I'll list that first. Sometimes when I'm feeling bummed out that day, I will send a few happy notes because I just know that someone on the other end of that email is going to be happy receiving it. And I often get a happy reply back. So it's just happiness bouncing back and forth. And so it brightens my day. That's a selfish reason. <laughs> I mean, and what parent what parent doesn't want that note of your child is, is awesome and I see them and you're like, oh, I agree. I'm their parent. That's great. And also happy notes are very appropriate for the kid who's not, as you said, awesome. But they're the kid. I mean, all kids are awesome. Don't get me wrong. But there are <laughs> kids in the class who are doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they're not the, the stars. They're not the loudest ones in the class. They're not the ones winning the awards. They're doing just fine. And those kids often get overlooked because we're focusing so much on the issues in the class or the kids who are just excelling beyond expectation. But what about the kids who are there doing what they're supposed to be doing and maybe get ignored? And I love to send happy notes to those families as well. Just, hey, I see your kid. I see... I see something special because your child helped another kid in class today. It doesn't have to be they won the Pulitzer Prize. It could be something small that they just, they're they're generous to each other, or they helped me out with something today in class, or they did a problem on the board that I asked them to do. Anything like that can be a happy note. Now, of course, there's the, the other side of that, which is we are hearing more examples, especially with kind of a feeling of kind of culture wars in education these days and parents being really angry and even sometimes abusive of teachers. Um, How, how does, you know, are you seeing more of that or hearing about more of that in education? I did a little bit and 
there was, I think it had to do a lot with some parents were uh, afraid of critical race theory, right? Or um, all kinds of reasons that they were upset. And that's, I think that that's died down a little bit. It seemed to hit its spike around the pandemic. And that was really a hard time, I think. And I hope that that does not resurge again. But um, I think and I put a I put a chapter in the book about that of having a conversation with the family that coming from a place of partnership, that no matter where you and I are on the political spectrum, we have a common goal and that's the success of your child. I want your child to learn. You want your child to learn. I want your child to be safe. You want your child to be safe. Those are things that we can absolutely 100% agree on. So then we can, we can set that as a foundation of going forward and we can discuss the things that are less important than those. Learning and safety are, are the first ones, but then after that, we can get into the details of the type of book that I'm assigning in my class. And coming from a place of research explaining why it's important for students to read books from a diverse uh, authors and uh, diverse voices and why why is that important and not coming from it in an attacking way or defensive way but coming from research and how this is going to help your child learn there you may not always come to an agreement and that is, that is okay and it's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows but not getting defensive is extremely important and staying professional is going to help that conversation create itself into a partnership rather than a conflict. How much do you think social media is playing a role? I, 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 there's, you know, teacher Instagram and TikTok and all these videos made by educators. And I will say, I've seen many of them venting, you know, with, without naming any names of their, you know, of anyone of, of interactions they've had where they're frustrating interactions they've had with parents or, or students, but parents in particular. Yeah. <laughs> Social media is, is an outlet, right? Uh, we've always had outlets, right? It could have been having coffee with your friends or calling your friend on the phone, but now it's a little more public <laughs> to have an outlet, but we've always had a need for an outlet. And I think those things can be discouraging. Those types of messages can be discouraging for a new teacher or someone who wants to be a teacher to see that message. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't have an outlet, but you know, if I'm seeing that on uh, Twitter or TikTok or, or whatever it is, and I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know if I want to be a teacher, or I was already feeling doubtful about being a teacher, and now this is making me feel even more sure I don't want to be a teacher. So that messaging can can hurt others, and I think we have to be careful with that. We also need to balance that with the positive, because there are so many beautiful, wonderful moments in our day as a, as a teacher that I hope that we're sharing those out too. Sounds like you're not out there uh, consuming those uh, those videos. Much. I don't. I don't because I find them to be harmful to my own well-being. <laughs> sure. You know, your title of your book, how, why, why this title, When Calling Parents Isn't Your Calling? Because I and my colleagues that I've worked with and many teachers that I have talked to don't like to call parents. We think that it takes too much time. We think that it might turn contentious, and it doesn't always turn contentious. It doesn't have to be that way, and phone calls don't have to be very lengthy. I've had phone calls that are four to five minutes long, a lot shorter than it would have taken me to write a few paragraphs. You're going to get a lot more done with a phone call than you are an email, depending on the topic, and picking up that phone 
many, many parents appreciate that. And I've been told that, and many of my colleagues have told me that, that parents say, thank you for giving me a call. Thank you for your compassion and understanding. Yes, my child did throw a pencil across the room, but I appreciate you having this phone call with me and being very clear about the expectations, but also empathizing, you know, like, hey, kids are kids and they're going to make mistakes, but here's our expectations and here's going to be the consequences. And if you come across that way, I think you can build that partnership more effectively than you can with multiple paragraphs in an email. So that that's where the title came from. Not that phone calls are always what to do, but I think most of the time a phone call is probably a good choice. Very pro phone. Not, not the latest technology, but a technology. Exactly. Okay. I, I am, like I said, anecdotes, we like anecdotes. Um, what is the most challenging parent interaction that you, that you've had? If you could share. There was one, I'm not sure if it's the most challenging, but the one that comes to mind right now is it was a parent conference and it was a mom and a dad who were freshly divorced. They had just divorced. So, um, a lot of anger was, was, uh, raw between them and they were bickering back and forth right in front of me and it was getting it was getting quite bitter and I had had enough of it and we were wasting time we weren't talking about their son which is why we're there and I somehow I don't know how I did this but I mustered the courage and I said we are here to talk about and I'll I'll use a a fake name we're here to talk about Scott and if we're not going to talk about Scott then the meeting is going to be over And they looked at me like, what? And I said, I'm going to step out for a minute because I was kind of trembling inside. Like, how how could I have said that? And so I I said, I'm going to step out for a minute. I'm going to come back and we're going to continue the conversation about Scott's progress. And it worked. They got the message. They actually apologized. And we, the, the meeting went well after that, but that was terrifying for me to actually stand up for a parent. That was many, many years ago. And I'd never stood up to a parent before because I didn't know how it would go. Um, I've also had another divorce theme, but it was a mom and dad who were divorced as well. And they would not speak to each other. They would only speak to me. And they would say, would you please tell him that da, 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 da. And then he would say, would you please tell her? I'm like, what? I'm sitting right here and you guys are within four feet of each other. <laughs> that was very awkward as well. <laughs> Right. And it, it does go to show that the, the complicated dramas going on in students' lives that you may not know about or that may really interfere with with all kinds of things. Yeah. You never know what kids are going home to and what's on their minds when they're getting to school. You never know. So you you did mention too that a lot of this a lot of teachers don't go into the profession imagining being great in an interaction with an angry parent. Um, and, and so do you, you mentioned that in teacher training programs, maybe more should be done in this, in this vein to like prepare people. Absolutely. Yes. More needs to be done in, in teacher training. When I was a student teacher, I sat in on a few parent conferences, but there are always the, the nice ones, the easy ones. And if there was one that was going to get a little tough They did not invite me to come in because maybe they're trying to protect me as a student teacher. I don't know. But I think that, and I've taught as an adjunct uh, professor uh, at a university for seniors who are doing their student teaching. 
And so I have a little bit of experience with this. And I think that those student teachers very much could use that experience of being in the tough meetings, seeing how that's handled by professionals with lots of experience, and perhaps even leading a meeting. Because if you're a student teacher and you are in that classroom day in and day out, you know those kids, you see their work, you have something to say, and your voice matters. And so letting a teacher, now maybe not letting a student teacher take the hardest one, that may not be the best choice, but let them lead maybe one that, that's gonna be a pre- pretty easy, and then also let them sit on the ones that are not so easy and not so fun. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I think you mentioned as well, like role-playing a tough, tough scenarios is another option. Yeah, I've done that as an instructional coach and uh, with, with current teachers as well. So this would work with student teachers, pre-service teachers, where I have had, I'm not a very good actress, but I played a complaining mom role and uh, sat with the teacher and had the teacher practice with me what he was going to reply to that parent from, from those complaints um, that, that she might have. And I was trying to guess the best I could of what this parent might say. <laughs> well, is there... Um... Thank you so much for doing this. Is there any other points that we haven't covered that you want to that you want to mention? Yeah, I would say we've talked a lot about what teachers can do, and we're extremely busy. And you might be an educator listening to this, thinking, "Yeah, but I don't have time to do all of those things." So, one major point that I, I mention in the book is boundaries. That's extremely important for an educator to maintain boundaries so that we can try to avoid slipping into burnout or getting resentful or just just getting stretched too thin. So maintaining those boundaries might mean I am not going to check my email past 6 p.m. or whatever works for your lifestyle, or I am absolutely not going to respond to a parent email within 24 hours because at our school, at least, you don't have to. You have 24 business hours to respond and you don't have to respond immediately. You could you could even say within 24 hours, I don't know the answer to that, but I will find out for you and get back to you. And that right there is a response. And just maintaining that for yourself is, is very important and not letting a parent walk over you and expect you to say yes to everything because we are professionals and we can behave as such and we can say, no, I don't agree with what your request is and just have have the confidence and hopefully all the people listening to this podcast right now have administrators i truly hope this is this is true have administrators who will back them up with those those professional boundaries well great well thanks again um, for sharing your thoughts and, and experiences we appreciate it thank you my pleasure this has been the ed surge podcast every week we bring you conversations like this one If you like the show, please follow the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen. We are on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And starting this week, actually, you can find the EdSurge podcast on YouTube. It's still just audio. We don't plan on turning on the camera anytime soon. But more people are using YouTube to listen to podcasts, so we want it to be there. This week's show is put together by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on X at JR Young or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig. And our music is by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.